this is Listeners, welcome to another episode of Warped Celluloid. I'm your host, Jack Rourke, with my co-host... Chandler Williams. How's it going, Chandler? What are the vibes like tonight? You know, pretty good. Just hanging in there. Finals are almost done, and I'm uh, really excited to talk about this film. Just a couple more days, we're in the clear, but for now, we get to escape and talk about some truly fine cinema. Like, I don't... I mean, like, we have... I like to think we've covered a good variety of material here, here on the podcast so far, and trust me, we aren't done yet. I mean, yet, but I think this, I mean, well, this isn't an overstatement in saying this is one of the finest films we've had, I mean, we've yet to cover. Absolutely. And that would be? Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. He was an intellectual who advocated action. He was a rebel who fought for tradition. He was an artist who shocked the world. Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas present a new film by Paul Schrader. Mishima. His writing shook the soul. His flamboyance captivated a generation. His vision challenged the conscience of his time. And on November 25th, 1970, his life became the ultimate expression of his art. Mishima. Alrighty, where does one begin with a film as massive and titanic as Mishima? I I don't I I don't know where to start. I love this film the so much. Only two hours, but it feels it feels like I mean, like a David Lean style epic where it just gives you so much to pour over, or and pour over that it completely justifies being like three or four hours. But it's only, but it's only two. It feels like a like a lifetime, honestly. Like you you see and you get the full scope of his entire life. Or at least yep. that, that's what it feels like. Um, yeah. But anyway, oh we gosh, forgot yeah. to tell people what this movie is about. What this movie is about. Anyway, right, for those who aren't familiar, this is a biopic about the, right, the Japanese writer Yukio Mishima, who, right, basically, a very popular author with very nationalistic tendencies, and this is how right, right, we watch his life unfold out now through the the prism of some of his uh, work. Yeah, which is a pretty straightforward synopsis, but the movie is anything but. Yes, and I don't we, mean that as an as an insult. I mean that as a compliment. We're shown his stories, um, like both while we're seeing um, the current, you know, coup happen, as well as um, his past, like and only fragments of those stories. Yeah. Too. Not, they don't play out the whole thing. It's just like certain ones that feel feel the most um, relevant to the story, story they, or, or yeah. in parallel in interesting ways. And they symbolically like represent what he was going through at the time. And we see 
that briefly, but the stories really tell um, all we need to know, which I think is just so, so genius. And, uh, yeah, this movie came out in an interesting time of the mid-80s. Well, one, Paul Schrader had not had not had a lot of success after Taxi Driver. Like, he directed a few movies. He did I mean, the Cat People remake, which I'm still lukewarm about. American Gigolo, which is pretty good. He also, but this was ran a third after after it, and uh, he enlisted the help of uh, Scorsese and Luke, not Scorsese, Coppola, shit, I mixed that up, anyway, Coppola and Lucas helped produce this, like what they did with uh, Kurosawa with Kagamusha just a few, five years prior, because they knew yeah. uh, without their without their clout, he probably wouldn't be able to get this made, at least at this level. And I think that's so nice, uh, or like seemingly nice of them to help produce this film, like, I'm sure they knew it was going to be. I kind of wish this sort of thing were was around now, but what the the closest thing I can think of is when people talk about how the Marvel movies are a lot or sort of a talent pool that like hey if this indie director or TV guy directs a Marvel movie they'll move on to more interesting projects and I want to believe that but so far that hasn't really panned out outside of Taika Waititi doing Jojo Rabbit and a couple or an action or in direct video action movies produced produced by the Russo brothers those are the only things I can think. It's not Coppola and Lucas are being producers on a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, it's not the same landscape now. Yeah, just to wear yeah, like massive directors. Yeah, yeah, just to wear massive yeah. directors and profiles in the industry get to do that. I, I miss it when people would use their clout to get the or the little things done or made. Sometimes yeah. that still happens, like Denis Villeneuve or in using jumping springboarding from Arrival to the new or into the Blade Runner sequel and then doing Dune. But it's not as common and rarely as personal as this is. I know some actors produce things. Um, yeah. Oh but, yeah, all the time. I mean, Brad, yeah. Bradley Cooper does it all the time. I mean, I, I don't think that that discussion should overwhelm this episode though. But I do think, I think it should illustrate a point, or in a point that it is kind of a shame we don't get a lot of stuff like this now. Not on this level, I mean, budget wise. Yeah. yeah. I I mean I don't think I've seen, I don't think I've ever seen a film this massive yet emotional and moving and just overall beautiful in contrast of sorts because it's so and it's so big in scope and ambition and yet it's so interpersonal or impersonal and and walled off to borrow sorry for the pun which we will get back to in just a moment the only scope i can compare it to now would be like um like budget wise or um, you know, like a Marvel movie, which is kind of sad, honestly. The weird thing is, this wasn't even one of the most expensive movies of its year that came out. It was only $5 million, which, Wow. In which, granted, $5 million was, or it was, or it was much more money back yeah, then. Yeah, due to inflation. Or back then, or in for, if you adjust for inflation, but still. Or in still, it's not or in only a fraction of some other high-profile films at the time. It's a big film. Yeah, it feels massive. Or massive, even though, I mean, though there are parts of it that are deliberately staging and theatrical, but in a way that's artful or incredible. Right, like the use of lighting and the right, those walled-off sets in certain scenes, scenes and the framing of them. It's just, ugh. And it's symbolic. I might go on a tangent right now, just how gorgeous this movie looks. I w- we should have multiple tangents about several things because they deserve to be d- discussed. Like one, going back to what you're saying about like the walled-off sets. Um, and like just how beautiful they look. I love how the walled-off sets are symbolic 
that they are the stories, you know? Like, they're, they're entire... That's the word yes. I was looking for, for for describing it. It feels insular. We're going to learn, again, sorry to repeat this pun, but walled off from everything else. This is word. his story and uniquely focused. Yeah, no, but um, we get we get to see that these like the world of the story isn't fully fleshed out. It's only what we need to know. Like yeah. you know, when they're rotating um, on that tiny picnic table with the you know the um, the chef and like the the people around them, I imagine I that is like the God, description. The, light, the lighting in that is just to die for. The yeah, no, I I imagine that being you know the only thing described um, within the description of the novel, which is so clever. You know, so and it helps us see like what we're watching is um, it, it helps us realize that this is one of his stories, one of his novels, um, yeah. instead of like a flashback or what's actually happening in real time. This feels like a really hard movie to talk about just for me is because outside of this movie, I am not familiar with Yukio Mishima's writing at all. I am not either. So it feels actually we probably should have read or a few of these before recording this. And I, I feel like we wouldn't like know or um, realize like the magnitude of his profile because we're not Japanese and we like weren't around when he was around. So I mean, like and, I'm uh, sure it would have been a much larger deal, or like we would have seen the magnitude of the situation if we were were alive and aware at the time. Yeah, I don't. And I also say, as and as much as I know about movies, a, a literary scholar I am not, and uh, I have yet to get a lot caught up on that history. So, right, right, the less said the better. Right now. And yes, in that regard. Yeah. But seriously, though, how fucking good does this movie look visually? It is. Who was the DP? And John Bailey, who, who did not shoot a lot of other films like this. Actually, he shot the way way back recently with a. Uh, I think Steve Carell's in that. it's coming. He shot Groundhog Day, as good as it gets. Or in mostly like smaller dramas and and or in romantic comedies actually. He did the producers' remake with Matthew Matthew Broderick, which yikes. Also worked with Lawrence Kasdan a lot. Which speaking of George Lucas, he also or he shot or in The Big Chill and uh, Silverado for him, which are both worth checking out. Nice. Well, yeah, like some of these some of these scenes, they just look immaculate and just so overwhelming and over the top and just overwhelmingly beautiful. It is bold. It is. I know this word gets used a lot, so it's kind of annoying, but it is a bold film in every in a way, especially visually, because these images just imprint on your brain the minute you see them. Like the one shot of all the men in the suit in the suit standing in a kind of a pier. We're in a triangle form in front in front of this. I think it's a temple. Yeah, and then the sun yeah, slowly sets behind red, him. With that pinkish red sunset, and then we're in the white ground. We're in the ground, like the composition of it, the color, we're in the color, the lighting. It's just ah. And then like so in, good, so it's so, so rich. Good. Yeah, so rich visually. Um, rich is and like word. even when it's black and white, it it still looks stunning. You know, the, it, the black it, and white. This might be some of the facts. prettiest black and white photography I've ever seen on film. It's crisp in a way that I, I mean, I love when it comes to black and white, black and white, when it's, you know, chiaroscuro and crisp. Um, when it's high, con when it's got that high contrast and those rich, dark shadows. That's yeah. my favorite kind of black and white photography, too. But even it's not over the top, you know, like when, the, when they're um, stylized, but, that, but not too, I mean, but not layered on so thick to where it attracts you from the scene. Yes. In regards to the black and white um, 
I think yeah. It that and I think also approach sums up the approach to the rest of the movie, which is very uh, it's it's very ambitious, very bold, and makes a lot of big swings, but it doesn't make too many many and restrains itself when it needs to. Right, like it's a, it's a very lofty and it, or an intellectual exercise, but it's not, but it's never feels pretentious. At least I yeah, didn't like feel the, that way. No, no, I I agree. Like there are you know humorous moments when he like he stops like, and most, you know, very dry humor too. It's not on the or in a, super on the where nose. It's very human. It makes sense with the character. And it's very human. I think is what yeah. you said. Yeah, like life, lively humor. Kind of old man humor, also. Like, yeah, in the moment, in the moment, like how characters would talk to each other if they were real people, not in the hyper realistic sense, but more like it gives you a sense of their relationship outside of the context of the film. Outside of just kind of off the cuff, like you know, dudes being dudes. (laughs) Yep, dudes rock. (laughs) Imagine through. I remember there was a film Twitter thing going around around where it just talked about like movies that are about hyper masculinity, like slap shot, and everybody wants them. Where they call them the dudes rock movies. That'd be funny if someone threw this in there for a laugh. I don't. Anyway, I don't um, think this film is hyper masculine whatsoever. But I think it's there, about it does... masculinity in a lot of way. Right, in a way, yes, I think. Yes. I don't think it's hyper masculine, and definitely not the same way as those. But it's definitely a major or major recurring theme. Like the the beauty of the body. Um, yep. I mean, beauty in general, and like the body, especially in the physical sense. Yeah, and I love how like each of the stories, they have like a focal point as theme, but it's so broad and it it covers it so well. Like, um, I know the first one, the Golden Pavilion, is centered around beauty, which is just so clever and nuanced. But I don't know, I don't know that really stuck with me. There were several lines of dialogue that I just I love from that um, that scene, and I mean like the the Golden Pavilion. Oh my gosh, like when. When he looks at it, and then God, the set design in that alone is just God, yeah, crazy. and then the entire I mean, structure, off, but it's like so, the weird it thing is, this was shot in and interiors, but it up. has such an impressive sense of scale on the inside. Oh yeah, yeah, but it's contained enough for you to know that it's a novel, you know, or it's yeah. one of the novels. And each segment has its own distinct visual. Like reality is probably the least impressive visually, but that's deliberate. We're deliberate. The colors aren't as bright, bright. The shadows aren't as high. It's a lot more uh, under understated visually. There, I like how distinct you. Anyway, that's all. That's all for that. I feel like we kind of jumped ahead, ran ahead a little bit because Chandler. I don't think we discussed how we decided on doing this film for the podcast. Can you uh, tell? Yeah, I uh, I came across this film on the Criterion channel, <clears throat> sponsored by Criterion. Sponsored um, by Criterion. <laughs> During the initial quarantine, when I was stuck in my house and I, you know, just got the Criterion Channel and I was, you know, flying through them, and this one really stuck out to me, and I, you know, told Jack he should check it out, and then uh, he suggested it for the podcast, and then a few nights ago we rewatched it at his place, and oh my gosh, it it hit just as hard seeing it the second time. Um, I honestly feel like a bad recording right now because I feel like I haven't really soaked it in all yet. And yet, and I'm just talking. I mean, this is one of those movies that, like, talking off the cuff almost fe- it feels like a disservice to it. Well, yeah, but like stating that, you know, if you state that, then I guess that shows your respect. Yeah, I, I, shows, I don't feel qualified talking line. about this film. We're not, we're probably going to go back to this at some point. Anyway, yeah, my experiences with this is one of those movies that 
I when I've heard Brown Paul Schrader, it's a title I've heard cop up a lot, in a lot, in a lot in like underseen films, in film discussion. And the one thing that again that shot I talked about with the triangle formation and underneath those red clouds, that's the image that stuck out to me. I didn't look up who what it was about. I looked, I knew the general idea. I didn't do a lot, a lot going, and I didn't even watch the trailer before watching this. And I'm very happy I didn't. Because man, was this an amazing film to walk into completely blind? Oh yeah, that I mean, I did the same. Uh, the, that and thumbnail worried, really stuck out to me. That, I mean, without the historical context, I wouldn't understand what was happening. No, but I feel like I I got a good sense of um, at least like what I he Schrader wanted me to get. I think um, of the character and the person and his life and his ambitions. And now I think we've come to the central figure of here, almost, almost as much so as Mishima himself, which would be Paul Schrader, who this is the most Paul Schrader and the least Paul Schrader movie imaginable. And that is a really interesting dichotomy to me, because a lot, of, a lot of his motifs and hang, hang ups show up in this movie. But I never would have guessed he would have made something like when he'd be the guy. But I'm so happy he did. Yeah, it feels very collaborative. Yeah. It still feels weird to me that that studio said yes to it at the time, and I cannot imagine a studio would say yes to it now. Now, unless it was a Chinese co-production on some blockbuster, like something like The Great Wall with Matt Damon. I mean, but that is leagues different from this. I mean, because imagine pitching this to a studio now, a mid-budget movie entirely for adults, not not a word spoken in English, not a not an American member in the in the principal camp, cast outside of one like sh- outside of literally one shot. Right near the end of the movie. Right, movie. Half of it's in black and white. Half of it is in rich, very pri- merry colors. About a figure that is, I have to assume, very controversial. Yeah. That. Yeah. That and there's like no the action, kind of no explosions. Make us feel like recoil and horror. Like this is. I mean, this is about as anti-commercial as mainstream filmmaking gets. Non-commercial. Yeah, but it feels huge. Yeah. Which is, right. I don't. I and feel so you know so proud and glad that they. Yeah, yeah, I feel happy that it got made. Yeah. Happy that I found it, you know. Yeah, of course. I, and it, and this is also not the only, only outlier in Aaron uh, Schrader's career because the guy is both, and both has a very distinct like hang up. Not exactly an auteur style, but he definitely has a lot of recurring, the same recurring themes like Catholic guilt, wearing like Catholic guilt, wearing guilt, masculine, and masculinity. What's right? Or in what drives men in the worst way, or in ways, and hell, this isn't even the only biopic to talk about. I also, if you want, or in some other uh, work to check out, I'd recommend his film Autofocus, which is about the the act or in the life of actor Bob Crane and well his descent into complete hedonism. Interesting. Yep. Right, it's not as stylized and minimalist as this is. It's more or less what you'd expect out of a biopic, but it is more traditionally Schrader, I think. What was it called? Autofocus. It's an interesting film. I do, it's definitely not as good as this, in my opinion, but I think it was worth mentioning because Schrader doing biopics is real. He's one of the few people I think get it, get it right consistently because there's one thing and one thing that always that always strikes a good biopic from a or from a bad or just an uninteresting one. Focus. It has to have a or any sort of theme to keep it grounded, like. I mean, like if you know, look at most of those music musician biopics, it, I mean, drug reuse I mean, it is always shows up 
but it is never a central theme throughout any of those movies. The one exception I can think of being Oliver Stone's The Doors. Yeah, yeah. I Which, see that. Speaking of movies that are going to feel like complete head trips. Anyway, wait, this not only has one recurring theme, it has several. Oh, yeah. Several. It is a very cogent narrative. It has to be a focused narrative, too. Anyway, and like, like in other great bi- biopics about art, about artists, it also has a very re- great respect for the creative process and an actual understanding of it. Yeah, I I love how like the sub narratives, the the stories within this film, they seem so different, but thematically they're very similar. Um, and I think that's so subtle and just so amazingly creative, and I, so well executed too. Everything, everything about this just film. just an utter maelstrom of creativity. Oh, yeah. And visual invention. It felt like Schrader was hungry making this. Like, I'm, he is pouring his blood, blood, sweat, and tears into every single frame. Absolutely fantastic. Everything about it. I think that, I'm, well, yeah, I think there is talking about this in relation to other biopics. Feels, or it honestly feels kind of necessary when you see, well, yeah, stuff like Bohemian Rhapsody, or in Rhapsody oh get, or in getting made, but still. And what, which is a pretty looking movie, I must admit, but it it is just the exact same music biopic about the bust with a different rock star that you have seen twenty damn times, even if you haven't seen a music biopic. Yeah, I, I, I it didn't. I was not a fan of that film. No, not not a lot of people or people in my circle are, and definitely, I definitely was. And the thing that makes me mad is Freddie Mer- Mercury feels like a kind of figure who would benefit for a st- or in a treatment like Machine, Di- or like hell, like a Bowie biopic. Or I think the closest th- thing I can think of in the music biopic would be Todd Haynes' "I'm Not There," which takes a look at Bob Dylan Dill- through all or in all of his different personas and I guess character, or in all the lo- or in the looks and evolutions he went to. That or in, more or less comes to the conclusion that Bob Dylan, in a sense, wasn't a real person. Not in the sense that he didn't exist, but more he, his actual persona is incredibly hard to pin down, and making a straightforward story about him is pointless, so you might as well lean to the the abstract and iconography as much as you can. Yeah, this film is so abstract, and I mean, just so non-linear. Minimalist. Visual. Yeah, I mean, I mean visually minimalist, yeah. Here's the thing, the shots give you a lot, but the actual structure of them is very, is more often than not very clear and very precise. We know exactly what we're seeing visual or visually, but it's but again, the lighting, the texture, or the texture, or the color, or the framing, everything about it just elevates to a next level. Yeah. It's very collage like also, I would say. This movie needs to be taught in classes. Oh, one hundred percent. I would definitely in like um production classes, like lighting. Yeah, light, lighting and color. Cinematography classes. Which for a movie that came from a 1985, man, is this well-preserved. Because it it still looks rich to this day. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it must have, or in a, how it must have played back in 85. Or yeah, or seeing it on a big screen. Well, yeah, it must, it must feel like a completely titanic, or a titanic enveloping experience. Or like going, or like if, or like you have to kind of check yourself twice. Like, wait, am I back in the real world? Yeah, I'm back in the real world. Or when it all ends and the lights go up. 
I would I would love to see that um, on the big yeah. screen. Yeah. As would I. Um, I here's the thing. I took like a two pages worth of notes, and it's still hard to work. Again, it feel it's just, we just feel overwhelmed, I guess, by this film. Yeah, and I also feel underqualified speaking about it. As you do know? I. Again, as do I. And I will say that Chandler was, or, or I think this is probably the most excited you've been to cover a film for a while. Or for a while, I ran and you were, were kind of worried that it overhyped me. Which, nope, you didn't. I think you set the exact right expectation, and I am so pleased that you did. Nice. I'm. Yeah. I'm glad. I was so excited to rewatch it, and um, yeah, I'm yeah. glad to talk about it. But I don't. I don't know what else to say other than it's gorgeous and amazing. And precise camera work. If I may explain, it's not the like David Fincher where it feels robotic and clean and running me- clinical and mechanical. Clinical. It still feels very human and hand. And I think handcrafted is the word. Organic. It's done with such in clear intent. I think the folks. Yeah. There. There's very organic motion. Um within the camera work that like draws you closer or like pushes you a little further away actually organic motion keep that in mind because that is what i think struck out to me mo- most it's not just the way it's framed it's the way the camera moves within it the way it slowly pans around and shows movement movement honestly this has legitimately some of the best cinematography i've ever i've ever seen and i just saw it a week ago so maybe chalk that up to recency bias, maybe not. Not, but I feel like this one's gonna stick with me for a very, very long time. Oh, certainly, yeah, it it definitely has with me. Um, it's this film is just so much. Everything about it, so much. Um, the di- can we talk about how great that screenplay is? It is such a terrific script. With the dialogue is so ri- rich. But, I yeah, so many good lines, and not in, in ways that actually make you think. Is all right. So many like philosophically rich um, conversations. And a writer is a warrior par excellence. Yeah, and um, lines like that are all over this, and just I could listen to this for hours. It makes you really. Not it, not only does it make you think about the characters and the story, but it makes you think about your life, you know, and your significance and the legacy you're leaving and you know, what you're doing with your time. Um, at least it did for me. And I th- think that's so beautiful when a film can do that. Um, it can, like, transcend the entertaining experience and, like, you know, penetrate your heart. That's the kind of thing that leaves you thinking hours after watching it. That's, that's the experience I love most in film. Yeah, yeah. And I love how this film, like, it truly encapsulates his entire life, or it feels like it does. Or at least the big, right, the big beats it has to hit if it's going to cover this. Ent- Which, as much as there right, are allusions to classical art and, of course, literate, right, literature, I do love the cinematic frame of reference it has. This looks like what if said, right, said when Suzuki, Suzuki made a biopic, because a lot of these colors and, fr- and environments remind me a lot of stuff like Tokyo Drifter. Yeah, that it's on my list. I'm not familiar with him, um, but is, I he is an exceptional yeah. filmmaker, and uh, I know he when he got to start way after this movie came out. But in one car way, his I can see also some some of his DNA in this. Yeah, I would love he inspired it, but I'm like it reminds me a lot. I would love to see filmmakers talk, talk about talk about narration, especially. 
Yeah, the narration is not over the top or overwhelming or um, as more of an inner as a or as a sort of inner or an inner um, what's the word? Not monologue. It's almost like an off camera speaking. Yeah, it's almost like off camera speaking rather than true yeah. narration. It feels like which I like. Which I like. I like when I like it when when it plays with that because it get, it really does interesting things with space and time. Oh yeah, I do too. I'm not the biggest fan of narration. Or any of that, uh, real, or any of that, or in mind blowing and theatrical and play with space and time. I can't believe we haven't gotten to this yet, but that Philip Glass score. Oh my gosh, I beautiful, beautiful stuff. I'm not sure if it tops well, work on Coin of Scotsy, but it is, but it definitely is an equal to it. It's so emotional and raw and epic that, like, when I heard it for the second time, rewatching it with you, I, I honestly, you know, started feeling emotional. Um, it's it's so moving. God, it's a great. It's a great piece of film writing, that's for sure. And I love, I love um, doing the second story. I forgot the name of it, but the the BDSM one. Right um, it was set like in the fifty or uh, either either the fifties or sixties, and um, like when the main character of that story, his second novel, who which name I'm blanking on, um, like when he goes into a bar or restaurant, the theme, the film's theme plays, but in like a um, pop rock, it's like a seventies pop rock. Ha, I mean, house. Version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, but the it plays in like a they play it in like a you know sixties seventies pop rock version of the score, which I think is awesome. Interesting. The way, also the way it flips back. Like I also see hints of Ozu in this, and we're in, in not exactly Kurosawa because I mean because it's again. If this feels giant, wait till you see something like Kagemusha, Musha Run, which is absolutely crushing in its scale and scope. And also, uh, this might be just a random thought here, but does this move? Can this movie claim to have the best use of the color pink in the history of movies? I like to think so. Yeah, I've never seen the color pink dominate the screen like it does in this film. It you know, feels like kind of a missed opportunity, you no? Know, because pink is a or in a really uh, interesting color, or in color visually, and you can do so much with it. But we don't see a lot of it. Even now, we're just starting to really do, or explore it. Like it's it's used not only for like um, you know intimacy and love and sex in this film, yeah. um, telling lies, but also that, like that one scene of them in the or in them together in the bedroom. Uh, Right in the bedroom with the right in those sh right in with those right in with the window shit, right in, right in shades, right in forming shadows and everything. I'm like right in the neon lights outside. I'm like, I want everything to look like this from here on out. No questions about it. Such a vibe. Yep. And their their dialogue in that scene, it's so so incredible. 
Um, I don't, I don't even know how else to describe it. That's, it's just so human and natural and, but like ambition, they, they talk about their ambitions and, um, the woman kind of like, you know, makes fun of him, but in a, you know, loving, like, you know, loving way. joking like, way. Like yeah. And again, this is in the second novel. Um, Kyoko, and you'll, I think if you've seen Kyoko the film, you'll know. Yeah, yeah. I wish Wikipedia li- ran a list at each second. Production and production. Wikipedia is not very helpful right now for this. We're, you know, it was something I just realized. Roy Scheider originally did the narration, ran narration for the original script, film and the early VHS release, but. But his voiceover was cut out in in subsequent DVD release releases, and it was added by an uncredited actor. Which is strange. Interesting. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, and speaking of something interesting, uh, do you ever notice the probably the biggest uh, recurring motif, both visually and mentally, is death, self-inflicted death specifically, and self-mutilation. Yeah, what is... And I'm not just uh, talking about the way he... Right, how he commits seppuku at the end. Seppuku, that's the word I was thinking. Yeah, that that's a reoccurring theme. Um, like, in honor like, of... Like, how he's constantly, you constantly see scars and... And in other injuries on him and see him getting them. And it's in a way, I'm like, is he getting a kick out of this? Yeah, it's like, you know, dying to your beauty. And I think, like, the theme of beauty, all the themes, you know, correlate and tie into each other, but... Like the death of beauty and the beauty of death, it's all woven together and um, like the glorification of the body and its form. And like that goes back to, you know, the cutting. And the shock composition too. Like there is a, I mean, there is a, I don't know, I mean, know if it, I mean, it's a split diopter or, or mixed with the dolly zoom, which seems like the kind of thing like, like, wow, I, yeah, I'd never be able to dream of you mixing like that, but there's a shot where it's mostly where a woman's a woman's breast against the gold wall, but it like zooms past right past in a way that isn't over the top. But I'm like, but it feels so real and in the moment. Like, how did they do that? How did they accomplish that, that effect? Wait, which what shot in the it's the golden? The golden, in the, in the golden oh yeah, yeah. When the when his hand is over her shaking, but then like the the structure in the background like yeah it feels like it's always yeah space where where it condenses where it expands everything or anything but it god i've never seen it used like that with from that angle with that kind of light it is truly visually invented and uh i don't think this is surprising to read but uh schrader considers this is the best film he's ever directed oh that, that's a you know and that's it's a, an interesting stance to take because at, at the time, the American press was more was supportive of it, but most people didn't really care. Didn't care that it was out. Didn't care it was out outside of film critics. critics, but in Japan, it was definitely a subject of controversy. It was withdrawn from the Tokyo International Film Festival, well, and never officially inter- released in Japan, mostly due, because of boycotts. This film. Yep. Yeah, that, Which, that's, uh, that's pretty. Awesome. The one thing it has in common with other biopics is that. Or is that the subject, or the subject's, or an extended family was not happy with it? Interesting. There were, and there were also right wing, right right wing groups who really did not like the hints of homosexuality in the film. 
Which, yeah. yeah, and I was intrigued Yikes. by like, I was intrigued by how not I don't want to say like how well that theme was handled because, um, I mean like it it wasn't the biggest part of the movie because like whenever the majority of films I've seen involving homosexuality, it's like that's the center point of the character or the, or the yeah. film, and like this. It, Which it, we're finally it, getting away from that now, and that's for, and for good reason because it's yes, yes. almost veers into, the, into that terrifying trope of tokenism. Yeah, no, but this film is something that I, I think people it. have and people know, even if they don't know the word for it. Yeah, no, There's but I, I think this film handles it so well. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's nuanced Again, once you realize it. Mishima is by the way a character, or any character, and the way his world is envisioned. Everything about it serves his character, I think. And not just a nar- narrative. Really, it's all just a look into his psychosis. Yeah, it makes me and want his, to his ideation. It makes me want to check out more of his work. Yeah, I mean, me too. Hopefully they're translated into English. They're, they're, they have to be, right? I imagine. Yeah, yeah I assume they are. Um, I want to read that second one, the... Uh, I'm trying to go through my trying to go through my notes right now just to see if there's anything, how much more there is to talk about. So most of or any of these or any of these are just like notes like, oh, that's a cool shot, my shot, that's cool. Like I wrote a few timestamps down. And, yeah. Um, okay, now I remember this and here this quote. Or I don't remember who coined that. I'm probably tr- in paraphrasing, but bear with me on this. It is what it is the thing I should. And people should go into when they make whenever they make a biopic or anything based on a true story is don't try to capture the event, capture the spirit or the feeling of the event. Mm, How it's going to be in the moment because ultimately that's the most realistic thing you can chip or on film, like or like even and something like United 93, so well. which is very uh, a lot less stylized and than that. This still feels that t- the tension of that moment is just yikes. Yes, the tone it's is shaking. Almost always very heavy and um, suspenseful and just rich. Um, like all of the seppuku, when they commit seppuku, it's just an excuse us if that's not the correct um, pronunciation. But it's, you, I mean, you feel the richness and like the intensity of the scenario and the situation. Uh, the way right, the way he asked for his one of his cohorts at the end to decapitate him as he has the. I mean, it's like the way his hand shakes and the sweat pour, pouring down on him is, and now he's just staring like, "Am I gonna do this? Am I really, really gonna do like that doubt that's keep that keeps like circulating in his mind? Mind is so palpable." Yeah, I love the suspense in that office scene because you know what's gonna happen eventually, and um, yeah. like once they take the uh, minister captive, it's just oh, like it, it's such a build. It's great. It's a great build, build up, and I do like the how completely the film deflates Mishima at the end when he makes that triumphant speech in front of the or in front of those soldiers after he takes I think some sort of military base hostage. Or in hostage, he's standing up. It's he's shot in almost entirely low angles throughout the rest of the scene, and then the film completely deflates his nationalist message by cutting or by going to the ground level with the soldiers, having the dialogue more or less heard how it would actually be if you were on that level in real life. And then showing the soldiers just angry at him for his actions and not understanding or hearing a word he's saying because he appears to them as little more than a madman. And it's kind of sad, honestly. 
it's depressing, but or it's fascinating too. Like it's the one mo- or moment where the movie completely takes you out of it, and it's an intentional disconnect. Yeah, and I, I mean, I felt bad for him in a way because, um, like, I you know just watched his entire life build up to this triumphant oh, moment, and, and what he's doing is still kind of insane. Yeah, more or less and him he... trying to overthrow an entire government. I mean, yes, vaguely fascist ideas. Yeah, I mean, definitely nationalist. That's for sure. Like, I don't think they don't really go into what the ideas he's trying to defend are, which I think is kind of smart, um, because they are, you know, probably they don't go into the. You can go you if you read into it, you can when you can kind of gleam a few things like the way again the strong image imagery definitely suggests at least something very nationalist and populist and big because. Old-fashioned communicated. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't really go further than that, at least not from what I've seen. Again, I've only seen this once. I'm probably there's probably stuff I'm still missing on that will bring come to me in subsequent viewings. I think it's obvious that we're both going to give this. We're in a perfect ten, right? Oh yeah, totally. Both of us would consider this like a we're like about as flawless as filmmaking gets. Yeah, a true work of art. Um, to just do the medium of film. Seeing beauty is hell, isn't it? Yes, yes. God, the pacing too. I think that's what Helms honestly makes this movie feel better is how deliberate it is. It's not I mean, slow either because there's still stuff happening, but it again it baits the hook and and bears that threat. like it just keeps you going, going like just a little bit further. That's fine. Yeah, and I mean like going back to the overall structure of the film, I think it's so effective and creative that we see his stories tell his story, you know, and like how he progresses exactly, through his which life. Which is often how the artists communicate with the outside world in general is because they have these feelings and they feel like honestly the only safe and way, way that makes them feel comfortable to express them is in their art. Yeah, right? and, and that's such a smart way to do a biopic. Is even to in show mainstream it. stuff like John Hughes movies, you can tell, where I tell like these are just thoughts he's had, had or people he's known, where known and this is coming from a personal plate. Place a person's artwork can can tell you a lot about that person, that person whether they mean to or not. Not I mean, granted, there are always exceptions to, into the into this, but it, usually there's always that personal touch that comes through to one extent yeah. or another. Absolutely. So yeah, Mishima, go check it out. It's or it's on. I think last time I checked it's on HBO and also the Criterion Channel. Because it's in their collection. The Blu-ray is fantastic. That's what Chandler showed me. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous restoration. Yes, and the cover is beautiful, which I'm yep. always a sucker for. I do for prefer their... the original poster, though, if I'm being honest. I, I honestly like the the remastered cover. Cover. I think That's it, fair. It, uh, I was wrong. It is not on HBO. It is on, it is on Canopy in some territories, though, which is a uh, streaming service you can get for the library card, which I got, but it's not in mine, so uh, take that for a grain of salt. And like for the for the length of this film, it does you know it is two hours, which is like you know pretty lengthy for a film, but it's it feels I don't it doesn't feel two hours. It, it feels, feels longer than two hours, and I mean that is a good thing. Yeah, it yeah. So much in that bit of time, or in time that it just kind of leaves you breathless by the end of it. Oh yeah, like I didn't know what to do with myself once we finished watching it. And I was like. It's just so epic and just emotional. Awe-inspiring. Truly, truly awe-inspiring. Awe-inspiring, yes. That's 
the war I was looking for. Um, also, actually, now that I'm, if I may go back to the region, just for a moment, I think re rewatching this may re not rewatching it, watching it for the first time, made me notice why what I appreciate in a good remaster or re or in a restoration of a film detail. What or like how much detail you can make out. I mean, it's not just how clean the image where it looks. It's like how, or if you can notice like the little things in costume, or in costuming it, or in facial or in, or in structures and whatnot. Yeah, and like the pores and wrinkles of skin. Yeah, it, which you see a lot in this. Yeah. Every and the thing, my favorite visual motif is just again those rooms that are just surrounded by dark, closed off world. And then the film, near the very end, completely subverts that by having one of the rooms have the no walls knocked down and have the outside world encroaching it. It's such a good visual me metaphor and subversion of your expectations. It makes complete sense, and yet it still catches you off guard. Brilliant. Just brilliant. Oh, that might be one of my favorite scenes um, visually, but I think my favorite shot is when they're, like, it's prior to that, when the men are, um, you know, standing in, like, a, in a triangle and a... Above that yeah, little, the, yeah, the it's triangle. Probably, probably the iconic image from the film. Yeah, it's the thumbnail on the Criterion Channel. It's also the, the thumbnail film. on the Letterbox page, and and I think also IMDb. I'm gonna, I am going to uh, double check that. Yeah, but going back to what you said um, about that that scene previously, uh, like where they pull the walls back, I think it's it's also like self aware of the fact that they're you know shooting on a sound um, soundstage. Yeah, they on play, sound sound stages, it. and like that, it's you know they a fictional as much world. Or as one possibly could under the circumstances. Yeah, and it it's so like it's so ah just so symbolic and creative and intuitive. In the very best sense of the word, and I think that's honestly a good note. If I may say so myself, anyway. Next time we are going, I mean, we are going to continue going to supply or in blind film territory with. Or in, a, with a com or in comparison with a seminal science fiction film, and it's not, and it's sort of forgotten remake. It's well regard, it's a well regarded remake, remake for sure, but it's not really talked about all that much. At least, definitely not as much as the original, which is actually quite rare. When I think about it, but anyway, we're in, keep an eye out for that. That's going to be a very, very interesting episode to record as well. Well, yeah, I like us talking about like art films. Yep. Right, and we're and we're trying to keep it variety. Don't worry. We're also yeah. we're also going to talk about Dune and Total Recall next month. <clears throat> anyway, wait. If you like, and if you like the podcast, follow us or right, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Leave review or right, views helps spread the word and whatnot. Or right, and whatnot. Follow us on Twitter at Warp Celluloid, and yeah, follow us on Letterbox, Jack Rook and Chandler Williams, respectively. Yeah, totally. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Take care.